Book of James, turn to book of James. James, actually, we're going to go James chapter 3 to start off here. End of James chapter 3, verse 13. And as we get into that, everyone's good back there, we're going to just open with uh, some prayer. Lord, thank you uh, just for this day. Thank you for, our, thank you for our kids going downstairs, Lord. Uh, bless those kids, bless the teachers as they go down. Uh, thank you for... Um, Willing, willing people to teach them biblical wisdom, Lord, uh, to help them grow in knowledge of you, Lord. And just bless us up here as we uh, go through your word, Lord. Give me biblical wisdom. Uh, give all of us biblical wisdom as we, as we go through your word here. Uh, and just help us today to get a clear understanding of what you're trying to tell us. So in your name, amen. Amen. So James chapter 3, verse 13. If you remember last time, um, I didn't make it quite through James chapter 3, so we're going to pick it up in James 3, 13 and go right to the end of 14 today. So let's read right away here. It's going to come up on screen. Verse 13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And so a common thread we have here regarding the book of James that we've seen over the past time going through James is the qualities of a mature Christian and the, the importance of works accompanying your faith. And verse 13 starts off no different here. It says the importance of good conduct accompanying wisdom. Because if you remember from chapter 2, there is no, um, there's no way to measure someone's faith intrinsically, right? I can't look at you guys out here and see each of you with a glowing faith meter over your head. You know, I just can't tell how much faith you have. The only way that I can measure the faith of someone is by their works, by the fruit that is produced from the action of your faith. And so in the same way, at the end of chapter 3 here, James continues with that thought, and he says, Who's wise and understanding? Well, show it by your good conduct in the meekness of wisdom. And you know, wisdom is more than just head knowledge. It's, you know, true wisdom is demonstrated by what? Well, James tells us it here, by good conduct and by meekness, the two things. You measure wisdom by good conduct and by meekness. And so just keep those two points in the back of your head, the back of your mind, just put them, on, put them in the trunk for a second here, because James ha- takes a bit of an interlude before we go on to talk about that. Rather than go on and, and explain what, what good conduct and meekness look like, uh, first he shows us what good conduct and meekness won't look like. He shows us what true wisdom won't look like. Verse 14 to 16, he shows us what real wisdom is not. Verse 14 to 16 says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. True wisdom is not jealous. It doesn't have selfish ambition. It doesn't boast of the false truth. That kind of wisdom isn't from our Heavenly Father above. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. Where that kind of wisdom exists, it will lead to to disorder and to every vile practice. You see, in our Christian life, life we live, there's three main things that we battle in our Christian life. The first thing is the earthly things, the worldly desires. You know, the, the narrow-minded view that this, this is all the life that we have to live for, the, 
the worldly desires, they creep into your life, you know, power, money, fame, stuff and things, you know, bigger boats, Instagram followers, Facebook likes, that kind of stuff. The second thing that the main, the second main thing that the Christian fights against is the unspiritual or can be commonly translated as sensual or, or the flesh, the fleshly things, the in- internal desires of the flesh. Deciding to live in our fallen nature of our flesh rather than the Holy Spirit-filled nature that God calls us to. Ephesians 4.22 says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the first thing that we mainly battle against is the world, the second thing we mainly battle against is the flesh. And the third thing, the main enemy of the Christian, is the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And you know, you might be sitting here this morning, and you, maybe you don't know about Jesus, maybe you don't know about this Christian life, maybe you're watching online, and you're listening, and you're like, you know, Blake, I can go with the first two you know, the world, yeah, the world's kind of messed up. There's weird stuff going on out there. Uh, you know, I can see how we battle against the world. It's a bad influence. Or, you know, oh, yeah, I can see how I battle against my fleshly desires. You know, I do things and, and don't do things that I probably should do. You know, that makes sense. But the devil, come on, Blake, give me a break. The devil, you think the devil's real? Friends, the devil is real. He's like a roaring lion seeking to devour and kill. See, the devil has an army behind him, using tactics that are far more effective and cunning than I can ever imagine and ever hope to fight for, fight against without the help of Jesus. There's nothing more that the devil would like than to have you believe that he isn't real. Friends, we're in a daily constant battle against the world, against the flesh, and against the devil. And what's the result of that battle? What happens when we decide to let our enemies take control? Well, verse 16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now, in this day and age, I don't want to, I sound like I'm just beating a dead horse, but I'm going to say it again. Just look at what's going on in our world, right? (laughs) Would you say that there's disorder and every vile practice going on in our world? just a little bit, (laughs) in our governments, in our countries, in our cities, in our towns, in our social media feeds. Wisdom from the world produces disorder and every vile practice. And now, I sound like we've been saying that a lot over the past eight months, you know, just look at what's going on. But let's be honest, this isn't just exclusive to our generation. You, You know, when you go back in time over and over and over again, whether it's A.D. 60, when James wrote this letter, or whether it's the 1400s or the year 2020, it's all the same. Jealousy and selfish ambition disguised as true wisdom, which leads to disorder and every vile practice. And friends, let me tell you, this thing we keep saying over and over, it's not going to change. In fact, it's only going to get worse before it gets better. Look at verse 17. It says, but... oh." Hold on. Don't look at verse 17 for a second. 
Did you know that one of the best words in the Bible is the word but? You did. You're, you must be reading your Bible. Anytime you see the, that word in the Bible, you should start to get excited. Friends, start to get excited because good things are coming when you see the word but in the Bible. A word so small, simple, three letters, just three letters, has tremendous power that can turn mourning and lamenting into gladness and joy. Now let's read. Remember, good things are coming when you see the word but. Verse 17 to 18 says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do you remember verse 13? Remember those two points I told you to put on the back burner? Well, bring them up again. Good conduct and meekness. Who is wise and understanding? By good conduct, show your works in the meekness of wisdom. What does good conduct and meekness from above look like? Well, here James gives us eight unique things, eight things to look for, eight characteristics of what wisdom from above, wisdom from God our Father looks like. So let's quickly bust through them quickly. The first one is wisdom from above is pure. It's got good motives. In the Old Testament, the word purity was often related to um, being ritually clean before performing a sacrifice. Whereas in the New Testament, we have one sacrifice for all. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are ritually pure from the working power of Jesus Christ. New Testament purity relates to moral, moral purity or, or uprightness. The second thing that we look at is peaceable. God's wisdom isn't looking to stir up trouble. You know, being peaceable, it isn't actually just the absence of conflict. The idea of being peaceable is actually the, the act of, of actively encouraging and uplifting to encourage peace amongst people. The third thing is gentle. Matthew Arnold translates this word gentle as, um, he calls it sweet reasonableness, which is a great word because the idea of being gentle is, is kind of a hard one to define, right? It's kind of like the idea of velvet steel. Uh, where you're gentle, but you're not just laying your, yourself down. And friends, you know when someone is gentle, and you know when someone is definitely not gentle, right? <laughs> God's wisdom has a sweet reasonableness in all of your conduct. The fourth thing James tells us is, is open to reason. God's wisdom is willing to yield. Now understand this before we go too far. There, there's definitely some things that we don't yield on. There's definitely some things that we need to hold our ground on, but blessed are the flexible for they won't break. Friends, if you think one of your spiritual gifts is that you're a stubborn old dog, sorry, it's not. You're wrong. <laughs> it's time to rethink. One of the conducts of God's wisdom is being open to reason. Like James said earlier in the letter, slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to wrath. The fifth thing James talks about is full of mercy. God's wisdom is merciful. Biblically, when you come across the idea of being full or filled, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being full, full of mercy, it refers to the idea of being controlled by that thing. God's wisdom is full of mercy. God's wisdom is controlled by mercy. God's wisdom will lead our conduct to being controlled by mercy. Luke tells us to be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Earlier in James chapter 2, if you remember, James says, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
The sixth thing that we'll see from God's wisdom is it produces good fruits. True wisdom that comes from God is shown in a conduct that produces good fruit. It doesn't produce fruit that's disorderly and filled with vile practice. God's wisdom is practical. It doesn't merely just head knowledge that you just put into your head and store it away for future use. It's not just simply talk. God's wisdom has results that go along with it that produce good fruits. The seventh thing is impartial. God's wisdom is impartial. God's wisdom shows no partiality. Remember in chapter 2, we talked about the sin of partiality, actually. We talked just about this exact thing, about how people would come into church and there'd be favor shown to the rich and favor shown to the good-looking and, and favor shown to the people that could like help get you somewhere in this life. And they'd treat the poor and the elderly like dirt. Like, ah, you go sit at the back. We don't have time for you. What's the most important command? Love God, love your neighbor. God's wisdom is impartial in its good conduct. And the last thing, the eighth thing, James tells us here about good conduct and meekness in God's wisdom is it's sincere. God's wisdom produces conduct that is sincere. When man's wisdom at work is at work, there's pretense and dishonesty, but when God's wisdom is at work, it takes those previous seven things. It takes purity. It takes peaceableness. It takes gentleness. It takes being open to reason. It takes mercy. It takes good fruits. It takes impartiality. And it wraps it all up in a nice little burrito, nice little sincere person. Not fake, not double-minded. So let's compare and contrast now that we've blasted through those eight things. What's the result of wisdom from the world? Well, it's disorderly. It has every vile practice. It has trouble. Why is the world such a mess? Friends, because humanity has chosen the wisdom of earthly, unspiritual, demonic things over the wisdom of God. And in contrast to that, what is the result of godly wisdom? Well, verse 18 says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The product of God's wisdom is a harvest of righteousness. Now, that's kind of confusing. Righteous being made free from guilt or sin. See, when you live in God's wisdom you'll see the fruit of righteousness come up all around you. And this is like just a wild thought. It's one of those things that you just kind of casually say and jump over. But like when you think about it, it's like the implications of this are wild. James 1.5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously with all reproach. You see, in verse 18 there, it's, it's saying from what I understand is that as you are given wisdom, as you are in good conduct, as you're meek, like the previous eight characteristics told us, according to the wisdom of God that came from above, which God gives to all, if you simply ask for it, you in turn sow the seed of righteousness around you and a harvest of righteousness comes up. There's a great harvest of righteousness around you when you sow the seed of godly wisdom around you. And that right there, actually, friends, I didn't talk about this before the announcements, but that reason right there is why tomorrow we're starting a, uh, well, we're, we don't really have an official name for it, but we're calling it a biblical worldview class for high school kids geared towards high school youth. Um, tomorrow, 3.15 to 4.15, right here at the church. It's just a class teaching about living in this world and not of this world because 
you know, we want to be people that sow a seed of righteousness around us. We want our youth to grow into disciples of Jesus that look to God for wisdom. Amen? And that's what we're doing, you know. Our leadership has taken it on them to say, listen, we're not just going to be simply hearers of the word, but we're going to be doers of the word. And so tomorrow, if you're, I mean, I think someday we're going to move this into an adult-geared class too, because when I hear the things they're doing, it sounds awesome. They're going to be talking about, oh, I've already forgotten already, but they're going to have, <laughs> what a terrible, what is a biblical worldview? So they're going to have people sharing testimonies. We're going to be going through watching videos with uh, geared towards grade 8 to 12 just for an hour after school on Mondays. We're going to be training our kids to get biblical wisdom. Amen. What is a biblical worldview? So if you want to come to that, 3.15 to 4.15. I won't tell anyone, but you can. we're going to be here. If you're an adult, you can just sneak in the side and just listen. Maybe we'll leave you in Shona's office and you can overhear, but it's going to be awesome. We're teaching our, raising our kids in this church to be disciples for Jesus Christ, to get godly wisdom rather than wisdom from this world. Let's keep going in chapter 4. And chapter 4 starts with some strong words about the warning against worldliness. Not that we haven't heard some strong words already a little bit. Chapter 4, let's read chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We as Christians are called in the Bible elsewhere to have sweet fellowship and friendship amongst each other, right? But let's be honest for a second. It just doesn't always happen. It just doesn't. It just doesn't happen. Why? Well, James tells us in verse 1, my internal passions are at war within me. And sometimes that war inside of me comes to the surface causing strife and quarrels. Friends, you have a war inside of you. The word war here being used in in verse 1, is used in its present tense form. It's not a a past war that you've had. It's a war right now that you're having inside of you. You right now are sitting here. Everyone's got their eyes open. I'm impressed. It's nice, calm, beautiful day outside. Everyone's pretty chill. We got the family of whatever that is over there, tea, sipping their tea, at first, I thought it was eggnog, to be honest. I almost said eggnog. Soon, yes. December comes, we'll have eggnog, pots of eggnog. Everyone's got their coffee and tea. Everyone's pretty calm. It's, oh, hey, how's it going? But you don't realize what's going on right now. You know, maybe you're at home in your pajamas. You're laying on your couch. and Maybe you're even in bed. Heck, with phones nowadays, you're in bed, just so chill. Sleep number going on. Everything's great. And life is good, but guess what, friends? There's a battle going on right now. Right this second, there's a battle going on. And guess what? The battleground is inside of you right now. You know, there's an idea out there that says something like this. It says something, there's a Christian view, worldview of, it says something like, you know, when you become a Christian, you become perfect. You become um, no longer under the control of sin. You become no longer... Um, 
you know, you're a perfect being, you're transformed, you're not able to have the nature of sin anymore, you're unable to have the nature of sin, it's impossible. And, you know, in some ways, you kind of know what they're saying, you know, they, they relate to verses like 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. Or they relate you to verses like Ephesians 4.24, which says, Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Or they take you to verses like 1 Peter 3.16, which says, It's written, Be holy, for I am holy. But goodness gracious friends, sometimes I do things that I don't mean to do. Amen? Sometimes I say things I don't mean to say. Sometimes I think things I don't mean to think. I watch things I don't mean to watch. Like Paul says in Romans, he says, I don't do the things, why do I do the things I do? I don't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do. Why does this go on? Because there's a war inside of you fighting for your attention. What is it? Look at the end of verse 1. It says, your passions are at war within you. My passions are at war inside of me, So I desire and I don't have, I I covet and I can't obtain, so I fight and I quarrel. I seek out the passions inside of me, and what does it result in? Murder and fighting and quarrels. And so why do all these things happen? Why do I desire and I covet and and fight and quarrel and have these passions going on and and I can't keep them under control? Well, look at the end of verse 2. It says, you do not have because you do not ask. A life of conflict and unsatisfaction is the result of not going to God for your needs. The life of dissatisfaction and strife and and lack of wisdom, like we saw in the end of chapter 3, isn't because of a lack of effort. Oh no, there's a lot of effort going on in this strife and quarreling and, and anger going on. It isn't because of a lack of effort. It's because of a lack of just simply asking God for wisdom, asking God to supply you with your needs. And James goes on um, in verse 3, and and he says, okay, okay, well, maybe some of you are asking. Maybe your argument would be, no, no, I am asking, I am asking. Listen, listen, I'm asking, I'm praying. But James says, you're asking in totally the wrong way. Look at verse 3. It says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So, you might be sitting there saying, Blake, does this mean that there's bad prayers? Can I have a bad prayer? You bet. I've heard it said the worst thing that God can ever do is give you, say yes to all your prayers. Something I need to constantly be reminded in my life, my prayer life, personally, is the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is not to sway and convince a reluctant God uh, to give me my desires, to give me everything I ask for. Rather, the purpose of prayer is to align myself with God's will so that I can partner with him and have his kingdom be further spread on this earth as it is in heaven. And so these couple verses here are a good check for me. This is just a good check for you as you're going into prayer. First of all, are you actually praying? (laughs) Let's start there. Are you praying and are you asking? And second of all, when you do ask, are you asking in the right manner? Are your prayers self-centered or are they kingdom-centered? And so James doesn't back down now. He's just getting started. If you imagine the train's just getting, choo-choo, it's just getting fired up and he's throwing more coal into the fire because he wants to take this even farther. He ain't backing down. He's shoveling coal as fast as he can. Look at verse four. 
He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 5, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Whew, serious words here, friends. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. You cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God. In fact, more than that, even in the second half of, of verse 4, he even says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Just even trying to be a friend of the world, just even thinking about being a friend of the world will make you an enemy of God. The love for the passions of the world and the desire to put the earthly kingdom above God's kingdom, the desire to forego looking to God for wisdom, the desire to advance the goals of men rather than the goals of God will make you an enemy of God. Scary stuff. <laughs> Scary stuff. Look at verse 5 again. It says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now this is a confusing verse, verse 5, friends. Verse 5, what does this mean, right? This is a little confusing because for a few reasons. First of all, he says, doesn't the scripture say? Well, when you look in the scriptures, you, you actually can't find that text in any of the other scriptures. He's not referencing anything in our Bible. So you can't see the context or what's going on. And then the other thing that's confusing is that depending what translation you have, what translation of Bible you're using, it can lead you to uh, actually, two different thoughts of what the translators think James is trying to say here. And so I'm going to quickly present you with both thoughts uh, that are commonly accepted amongst scholars. So the first thought is this. The first way that translators and, and commentators take this verse is this. How many of you have the word spirit there with a capital S? On the screen, it doesn't. New King James Version, King James Version back out there at the back, Carrie, you got a capital S on spirit? Maybe. No. Oh, you don't. Okay. Well, New King James Version often puts a capital S on the word spirit there. And so that's translators. If you see a capital S in your Bible for spirit, that's translators trying to give you the idea of the Holy Spirit. The New King James Version in verse 5 says, the spirit, capital S, who dwells in us yearns jealously. The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. So this is, is a fairly clear idea of what they're trying to get at, right? It's the idea that, that you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, helping you, guiding you. Um, you know, Jesus sent him as a helper for you. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And when you go against God's will, it grieves the Holy Spirit. You know, we see elsewhere in the Bible that our God is a jealous God. He doesn't satisfy for anything less than all of you. So this idea isn't crazy, that the Holy Spirit yearns for you when he sees you um, turning away from God. You know, to summarize, you could say it like this. The Holy Spirit yearns jealously for you to submit to Christ rather than to submit to the passions at war within you. So that's one way that commentators and translators um, translate verse, uh, verse 5 there. 
The other option I'm going to present to you is if you have a little s, a little s in your Bible, which ESVs do, most, a lot of Bibles do have a little s for the word spirit. And so that means translators aren't translating this word as the Holy Spirit. They're, they're rather translating it as simply the life-giving spirit inside of you, you know, kind of like body, mind, spirit. Just, they're not translating it as the Holy Spirit, just simply the, the spirit within you giving you life. And the other thing that they talk about here is the word jealousy here, the word jealous. The Greek word for jealous here uh, is actually used in a more of a negative connotation. A different, it's actually a different Greek word for jealous used than when they talk about God's righteous jealousy that God has for his people. It's, it's more used, the word here in James is more of a negative connotation of jealous than the word used for God's righteous jealousy. So to summarize the second option, you could say it like this. I know this is a little confusing, and, but you're sticking with me. It'll be clear in a second. You could say it like this. I yearn jealousy, jealously for the passions inside of me over the spirit that God has given me life. Does that make any sense? So on one hand, you have the Holy Spirit grieving over you when you give in to the passions of war and you don't ask God for help. And then on the other hand, you have this idea that you yourself are yearning for the passions inside of you instead of the spirit that God has made to give you life. So which one is it? Which one of those two, which one of those two is it? Well, to be honest, I don't know. I did all that work for this to say, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I'm just going to be honest. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you, you know, it, I did about an hour's worth of research onto this topic. I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like I know more than Greek tra- old Greek translators that have literally dedicated their life to this type of thing, and they still can't completely agree. I just don't know. I just don't really know. I don't know which one of those two it is, but this is what I do know, and I can tell you this, is that no matter which translation you think is correct, it ain't good. <laughs> It ain't good. On one hand, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you grieving over the fact that time and time again, you choose the passions at war inside of you and you have conflict and you have strife and you forget to look to God for help. That's on one hand. And then on the other hand, you have the fact that that you yourself, time and time again, yearn for the passions inside of you instead of yearning for your spirit, which God created for you. God breathed life into you so that you and him could have a relationship. And instead of yearning to come closer to God, your life giver, you just slap him in the face time and time again, and you yearn for fleshly things. So which, which interpretation would you guys like? Pick one, right or left? I'll, let, I'll wait, you can pick. It ain't good, no matter which one you want. But. Love that word. Here comes our favorite word, the greatest three-letter word in the English dictionary, but. Let's look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Couldn't say it much better. I couldn't say it any better than he could. It'll come up on your screen. It says, note that contrast. Note it always. Observe how weak we are, how strong he is. How proud we are, how condescending he is. How erring we are, and how infallible he is. How changing we are, and how immutable he is. How provoking we are, and how forgiving he is. 
Observe how in us there is only ill, and, uh, and, in, and how in him there is only good, yet our ill but draws his goodness forth, and still he blesseth. Oh, what a rich contrast. Friends, the word but is a great word. What a great contrast the word but is. Think of all the quarreling and all the fighting that's been going on in the first five verses. Think of all the coveting and all the sin. Think of all the disorder and jealousy we talked about in chapter 3. Think of how I repeatedly forget to look to God for help, but he gives more grace. God gives more grace than all my sins combined. God gives more grace. If there's a reason I'm not living in it, it isn't because he's not willing to give it. It's because I'm not receiving it. Why do I sometimes feel like I'm not getting grace? Why do I sometimes, you know, just feel like, what's going on? I, I just don't, I don't always receive grace, and I don't live in it, and I don't walk in it. Why don't I get that? It's because of my darn pride. <laughs> Look at the end of verse 6. It says, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride and grace never intermingle. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. My pride says, God, give me grace because I spent a lot of time preparing for the sermon this week. Or, or pride says, give me grace because you, know, you should have heard some of my really good unselfish prayers this week. Or pride says, give me grace because, because uh, I took last Saturday off and I helped a lady in our church do some yard work. Shout out to our men, being hearers of the word and not doers of the word, which I'll admit I actually didn't do that. But our men did. <laughs> Pride demands grace because I think I'm do it. God gives grace not because of who you are and what you've done, but because of who he is. So what am I to do? God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. How do I make sure I'm humble? How do I stay humble? Well, James here shotgun blasts off 10 things. He's bang, 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 like a movie that you never run out of ammo. He's just shotgun off 10 things here. Kind of reminds you of an Old Testament prophet here. James, he's walking into town. He says, repent, bang, you know, humble yourself, bang, take down those idols, bang. Just like an Old, Old Testament prophet, just throwing down laws, do this, do that. And so we're going to take a bit of a closer look at the first few here, because just like I predicted, we're running out of time. And then you'll have to go home and do some of your self-research, self-studying uh, for the homework and test next week. What? Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit yourself to God and submit and resist the devil. Did you know that through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the only way the devil can win is if you stop resisting? You know, like I said, right now we're sitting here, it's great temperature in here, it's awesome, it's comfy, we've got these nice comfy chairs. But there's a wrestling match going on inside of you. Your passions are at war, and the only way for them to win is if you let them pin you. So resist on, good Christian. Keep fighting the good fight. With the help of Jesus, you cannot lose. And when it feels like you've won, you feel like things are all good, well, friends, keep the readiness of the gospel of peace strapped to your feet, because it ain't over till the big man calls you home. Keep going. Let's look at verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Friends, this is one of the greatest promises in the whole Bible, I think. 
Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Wow. This is the true nature of God. He wants to be near to you. He wants a relationship with you. You know, the the pain of, of sin grieved him so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross so that you and him could come closer together, so that you could draw near to him, and in return, he promises he will draw near to you. In the Old Testament, it was always, stay away, stay away, don't come into my presence. You know, once a year, the high priest could go behind the Holy of Holies. But now, because of Jesus, what was once stay away is now come near. For Jesus has ripped the curtain from top to bottom, and God longs to have a relationship with you. And so James goes on with these thoughts on what it looks like to be humble before God. Let's look at the end of verse 8 through to 10. It says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. As we draw near to God and humble ourselves, we become convicted of our sin. The primary goal of the Holy Spirit is to convict you of your sin and then turn you to Jesus. As you begin to submit to God and you allow the Spirit, capital S Spirit, to work, you'll begin to realize the sin you have and you'll have the appropriate response of anguish and repentance and you'll look to Jesus so that God can continue to draw near to you. Verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I think this is one of the greatest promises in the Bible. Well, there's just too many great promises in the Bible, right? Maybe it's the second greatest promise. I don't know. It's just too hard to order. As you are convicted of your sin and you come to in humility to God, what are you promised? He will exalt you. What a promise, man. That's two in five minutes. Not bad. Just like James said in verse 6, God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud, which is just totally backward in today's thinking, right? The thought that God exalts the humble. You know, nowadays we think, oh, if I could just get a little bit more of this, if I could beat this person or that person, if I could just get this job title, if I could have this recognition or that recognition, then I'll be exalted by the world. Friends, this is worldly wisdom. This is allowing yourself to be pinned by the devil. This is letting the passions of the flesh take over. Come to God with a humble heart and a repentant heart, and he will exalt you. James keeps going in verse 11 to 12. It says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Verse 12, There is only one lawgiver and one judge. He who is able to save and to to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? When we come to God uh, properly in a humble manner, it helps us in our relationship with others. You know, he says, don't speak evil of one another, because when you do that, you speak evil against the law, and you become a judge of the law. And you are not a judge of the law. Only God is a judge of the law. You are putting yourself in place of the law, and there is only one lawgiver and one judge. And so does this mean that we shouldn't use godly wisdom to evaluate people? No, no, by no means, right? This is just simply an encouragement, a reminder of who is ultimately in charge. And it actually reminds me of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, this actually. It says, when he says, for why what judgment you use, you also will be judged. 
Let's keep going in verse 13 to the end. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Consider the fragility of life. He's saying here, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Friends, recognize that life goes by in just a snap. We have our life and breath because of God, and if he wanted to, he could blink and it would all be over. Don't be arrogant in thinking that you can go about your day and however you like. Does this mean we're to be making no plans and fly by the seat of our pants? No, by no means. That's not what it means. But we need to realize that our plans include God. Who are you to say that I'm going to go do this or that, and whether God likes it or not, this is what I'm doing. Don't be arrogant. Live your life humbly, realizing that God is in control. And so to finish it off, I want to look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So what do we know? As uh, Barbara and Beth come up to... uh, lead us in a song, and we're actually going to partake in communion today. I forgot to say that earlier. If you're at home and you want to partake in communion with us, now's the time to, well, yeah, now's the time, I guess. You can skip what I'm saying. It's not as important as taking communion. Get your communion stuff ready. So what do we know here in verse 17? What do we know? Like James has been teaching all the way through this letter. It's an encouragement to not only be hearers of the word, but to be doers also. If you simply hear this this morning, or if you simply hear any other messages or anything else you listen to, and you say, yep, those are godly right things to do, sounds good, and yet you never do it, for you it is sin. So what do we know? What do we know today? What do we learn today? Well, I'm going to leave you with these three points, three key points. First one, where is your wisdom coming from? Is your wisdom coming from the Lord Or is it coming from earthly, fleshly, demonic things? The second thing is that you are in a battle, friends. You are in a battle. So resist. Fight, Christian. You are in a battle. Whether you like it or not, you are. You don't get to decide. Ask God to fulfill your desires. Ask God to align your passions with his. And the third thing is that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Friends, understand that God is in control. Understand that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Understand that God exalts the humble. Come to the Lord for everything you need. Realize that Jesus Christ is number one, and everything else will fall into place. Amen? Amen. So hey, this morning we're going to partake in communion. Um, I just want to encourage you this morning. um, Maybe you don't know what communion is. Maybe you don't you think you look around and you say, oh, where are all these people doing? You don't have to partake. No one's, no one's judging you. No one's looking, saying that guy didn't partake in communion. That guy did partake in communion. What we're doing here is we're remembering what Jesus has done for us. We're remembering that Jesus died on the cross for us. And the Bible, he says, do this in remembrance of me as he was partaking in communion with his disciples. And it actually says, if you don't believe in 
Jesus, if you don't believe that Jesus died on the cross for you and you partake in communion in the wrong way, it's not good. It's not good. So if you're sitting here today or you're at home and you go, well, I'll, tar- I'll do communion because everyone else is doing it because Blake's God is whatever. I'm at church and Blake's God, this is what they want to do. You don't have to do it. In fact, you shouldn't do it. But the other option is if you want to partake in communion, you think, man, I've heard what Jesus has done for me today. I've heard the goodness that Jesus has for me. I want to draw near to God. I want to grab onto that promise of drawing near to God, and he promises he'll draw near to you. Well, friends, today is the day to partake in communion. Today is a great day to partake in communion. All you have to do is ask him into your heart. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. And he says, remember, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of the fact that I died on the cross for you. And that's what we're going to do today. That's what we as Christians do. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus for us. So Greg and his family are going to hand out communion. I'm going to pray. And uh, Barbara and Beth are going to lead us in a song.